Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Shema Podcast. The topic I want to discuss today is something that I just I find absolutely amazing. I mean, you could spend years and years and years delving into the subject, but it's what we've been covering these last several partios. And it's on the building of the Mishkan and the components. And we've been learning, you know, this last week about the 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 dress of the Kohen Gadol and everything that goes into it. And it seems like just a lot of measurements, but I think it's just so fascinating because our infinite internal creator gave us the exact blueprint with the Torah's the blueprint of creation. He gave us a blueprint for connecting this physical world with the spiritual world. And it may seem like a little boring because, you know, we, we can't build the Mishkan. We can't build the portal right now. So you may just want to like table the topic, put a bookmark in it and say, I'll come back to it when Mashiach comes. But one of the things all the commentators point out is that the Mishkan is a microcosm of not only the universe, we're told, but of our physical selves, meaning that what we can learn from this is how to build a Mishkan within ourselves and connect the divine with the physical. And there was something else I was reading too. I think they're connected from Rabbi Nachman Lesson 11, where he was sort of talking and touching on these concepts of the Mishkan. But he sort of brought the lesson to the end to the fact that the reason we are still in exile is because of the rampant idolatry within the Jewish people. And you're like, idolatry? I haven't seen anyone praying to a statue. But what he really gets at is the idolatry that exists within the Jewish people is our haughtiness, our sense of self-importance. And that is really what he focuses on this lesson to sort of teach us that if we're going to bring about Mashiach and we're going to get the actual physical temple again, that is really what we need to focus on. So my theory is that what we're going to learn from our amazing guest, Rabbi Daniel Cutler, is that these two are intertwined. And if I'm wrong, you'll never know because I'll just edit the intro. Welcome to the Shema podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories, as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Rabbi Kotler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. And I love talking about the Mishkan. It's all through Hasidus, and in particular Hasidus Chabad, which I'm most familiar with. The Mishkan, it, it's prominently featured. And figuring out how we perform the, the metaphor for what the Mishkan is representing in our lives. I think that a lot of things that you find in the, uh, in the Torah, in general, the Torah is called the pardes, an orchard. And that is a reference to the four layers in the Torah that make up the word orchard in Hebrew, pardes. You have the pei, the resh, the dalad, and the samach. Spelling pardes, which means the pay stands for pshat, the simple level. The the way that it appears when you read it, or the reish stands for remez, hinting. And then, so then this might, in other words, when you read this, this makes me think of that. So it's, an, it's one level deep. The dalit is drush. That means what's the lesson from it? And then finally, the samach refers to sod, the, the secret. What's the kabbalah in it? And Hasidus will look at it at all of those four levels. This is not something that I've seen somewhere, but I'm, I'm just exploring this idea that when t- that you know if you take a three-dimensional object and you project it onto a paper, you get one view of it. And you know what does it look like when you take a cube and you have it on paper? Well, it looks like a square, or maybe it doesn't. If you turn it just a little bit, 
it might look like a diamond. It might look a little different. And when you have something otherworldly, we have something metaphysical, something that is permanent, infinite, and it's projected into our world, it comes across, there's 70 faces to the Torah. There's many facets and we can interpret it in different ways. It's all Torah. So the way that we understand the Mishkan as simply those measurements are real, of course. And the characters in the Mishkan, uh, the ones, the Moshe and Aaron and the roles of the Kohen and the Levi, the public servants there, those are all real people. But they're also, they're also mean, they mean something inside the community for all generations. They also mean something inside of us, inside of our mind or our entire structure. So each one of these has many meanings and it's, uh, it's fascinating to dive into them. The proof text in the Torah that many commentaries point to to say that the Mishkan is indeed something bigger than justice is the first line, uh, when, the line that, that, that it describes uh, the building of it says, Ve'asu li mikdash, I'll speak in the language of Texans, and y'all should make me a, um, a, a temple, a holy place, Vishachanti betocham, and I will live in them. So the commentaries say, that's not grammatically correct. Why does it switch to them instead of it? I'll live in it. I will dwell in it. But this, the them, Rashi explains in many commentaries, this is inside of all of us. And in the, in the course of history, we also have the idea that for thousands of years, humanity struggled along in the dark with occasional lights, but they didn't transform the world. And then after about 2000 years, you had Avraham, Abraham. And he raising, beginning the whole idea that there's one God and spreading it throughout the world. And that developed into Yitzchak, Yaakov, and now we have a family. And this family then goes into the iron crucible of Egypt and is forged into, into a nation that finally achieves its, its mission with the receiving of the Torah. But the building of the Mishkan was the capstone for saying, we've not just received our Torah, our instructions and our, our purpose, we now have a building project that will begin the process of, of making this physical world a home for God. There's a discourse from the Lubavitcher Rebbe called Basi Lagani, where it walks through this in the historical context and says, this is a line from Song of Songs. God says, I've come back to my garden, my bride, my sister, different terms of endearment for the Jewish people. And this coming back into the garden is accomplished with the building of the Mishkan. It's like, now you've given me a home, but it's not like God has to be introduced into the world for the first time. This was a garden. This is not a jungle. The world is, is a wonderful place. Over the course of history, we, humanity, we've done things to chase God's presence from the world. And then uh, over the course of history, we brought him again back closer into the world and in a permanent way, beginning with the, with the building of the Mishkan. So all this is a way of introduction to the importance of it. So it's sort of like bringing some permanence to the, what had recently occurred with the, the Mount Sinai experience. There are different opinions about when the instructions for the Mishkan came about and when we did build it. In particular, it has to do with whether it was before the sin of the golden calf or afterwards. There's three opinions, whether it was instructed to us before and built afterwards or instructed um, only afterwards and built afterwards or, in, or both instructed, um, uh, instructed before and built before. I think that's it. Right. And those, those three, like only one of them actually is historically valid. And there's different opinions. We, we don't today know what the, the one is, but the Rebbe unites all three of them inside of us and says that depending on which position you take, that's the question of what is the state of mind of building the Mishkan? Are we, now, if we're, if we're to make a temple, a, a Mishkan for God inside of us, it depends. Are we 
pre-sin? Are we uh, in the state of just like we get these instructions and, and we're going to build a bit in the Mishkan? And you know what? You can do this best if you haven't done big things wrong. Or we get the instructions and we're completely after the sin, but we've already done tshuva for it. That's the, well, the second opinion. And we have now, we're at the level of what's called a bainini or a bal tshuva. Um, that we've, we, we actually have a unique advantage from, from um, the extra the extra intensity of a balchuva. And according to the third opinion, it actually was in between. We're doing it as a way to do tshuva. We're, in a, we're actually in a bad state when we're building this, this mishkan. But we can, be, we can do that then as well. That makes me think that the, before the sin, we were on such a high level. We had the two crowns. We had no yetzer raw. Maybe even the mishkan wasn't even necessary until the sin. And we lost that, that level where we needed this structure. Is there, or some of the opinions focused on that type of, of yes, idea? Yes, that they really needed it because of that. In other words, of course, the goal is the whole world becomes holy and, and a seat for God as it is, okay. as it were. But we're going to start with just this one narrow area and really understand it as a prototype and perfect it inside of here, especially now that we've taken a step back because of the sin of the golden calf. And, and then that's where it's really important to build the Mishkan. Now, to be clear... God doesn't need a home. God is everywhere. We need God to have a home. The building of a Mishkan is so that we can bridge infinity and, and, and the finite in a physical world and give, uh, whether that Mishkan is a physical one or it's inside of us or it's inside of our community, all, at all levels of the interpretation, it's about us reaching upwards and connecting to the infinite and connecting to Hashem. And this is the, the building a seat or home for Hashem. At the simple level, this was a building project that united the entire Jewish people, got everybody excited. And it's a lesson for us about uh, the you know, building projects will do that as well. They, was, they had an oversupply. They actually had more than enough. They were so excited to build this home for God among, in their midst that they had more than enough. Another thing to think about is, is that when you build something, when you build a shul or any kind of a, a structure, anything holy, even in your home, to do it the nicest way possible. They had all these ingredients of gold and silver, and not to just make it look schleppy. Well, uh, the interior decorator was Hashem, so I... It'd be great. Right? Had to That's be, right. Now, nobody was going to argue. To go back to the metaphor for a minute, a minute, though, even though, I mean, in theory, they had a lot of gold, and they could have made everything out of gold. Why, why the mixture of gold, silver, and copper? There, too, it was a reference to including the entire nation, that gold refers to one state of being silver another and then copper is the people who are kind of struggling we're still or that that to those times in our life when we're still struggling it's at the lowest level it's kind of brass it's it's not glorious from the outside but the mishkan something that's that's there to uh, make a home for god has to include every one of us at every one of our levels is that why the the altar where the animal sacrifices took place was made out of copper yes and the outer altar, and then the inner one was gold, representing a higher, a higher level on the inside of the heart, which we're going to get into. There's, there's various co uh, commentaries, including uh, Hamik Daber from the Nitziv, and there's a book called Mishkanei Elyon from uh, the Ramchal that goes through the measurements and the Kabbalah behind the measurements. My, my familiarity is mostly with Hasidus, and so what I'm going to talk about will be from there on, on the individual parts. One other practical matter, when we begin the instructions to build the Mishkan, it says, you should take for me. And the commentaries say, whenever it says li, it means lishmi, you should do it for my name. In other words, no ulterior motives. 
But the Rebbe comments that it doesn't say give it with no ulterior motives, because generally speaking, when people give, they are well-intentioned. They're giving. It's, it's when you're collecting, the collectors of, of funds, those are the ones who have to be given the special instruction to, to have this be for the right reasons. Because a lot of times, you know, collecting, if you're, if you're somebody collecting on the behalf of the community, especially if your budget is, is, is dependent on it, you can... You can forget about the, the shma part, the uh, doing it for the right reasons. And so the Torah gives the instructions to do it, uh, you know, right from the outset, just like the person giving is doing it, lishma, for the right reasons. So too for the, uh, the, the collection. So what part of the Mishkan should we start with? I mean, should we work from the outside in? Let's go from the outside in. Okay. Generally speaking, the structure of the whole area was divided into three areas. You had the courtyard. And then in the courtyard, you have that altar for the carbonus, the offerings, as well as the washing station for the Kohanim. And then you had what's called the Kodesh or the Heichel. In the case of um, once the temple was moved to Jerusalem, it was uh, in you know, a stone building. But in the desert, this was called the Kodesh, the holy place. And in the, in the, in the, in the Kodesh, that's inside of the walls that are wood, overlaid with gold and then covered with curtains. And in there you had the menorah, you have the inner altar for, for incense, and you have the shulchan, the table, that had, was, that had the bread on it. And finally, the most inner chamber, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, which is where the, the Holy Ark, the Aaron Kodesh is, with the luchot, the tablets, as well as a Torah. And on top of the tablets was the keruvim. So we can start from the outside and what is there? First of all, there's, there's a protection on the outside with these, these uh, curtains for the wind and they were pegged down. And the rabbi comments that, you know, there's a lot of winds in the world and you've got to have some degree of protection for you and your family from the outside winds just to have a holy place, just to, have, to make your home into a mishkan, to make your home into a, you know, a holy place. There's some protection on the outside. You don't have a completely permeable entrance anything goes in anything goes out very hard these days it is hard with yeah. technology and even more important <laughs> the main scene and and you know when you think of what was done in the temple you have the offerings the the carbonot and that's on this big outer altar and uh, that's probably the most strange thing people think about wow are we going to go back to offering animal sacrifices certainly it certainly uh it requires a change of norms and uh, to imagine getting back there. For one thing, I mean, everybody, not everybody, many people eat meat and we don't think too much about how the meat gets produced. But there's a certain cavalier attitude towards the life of the animal. And here you have, when the, uh, when the meat is eaten, and by the way, most of the times, this, the offerings were, uh, ended up feeding the public servants and the holy, the teachers, the classes of the community, the, the Kohen and the Levi, that's where they got their food, some of their food from these carbonot. And uh, parts of it were completely burnt, though, on the Mizbeach. And you really have a lot of respect to the animal. You took an animal, and sometimes the, the circumstances that would lead to this. Now, first, there, was certain, there were public um, offerings in the, once in the morning and once in the evening. And then another one on Shabbos or Holy Days. But on an individual level, this was a, a spiritual experience. The Levites were singing. It was an uplifting spiritual experience. And you have to say, how does that correlate with bringing an animal sacrifice and then when when did you do it you did it when you did something wrong and you felt you had to atone for something number one if you did it because something great happened to you 
you were saved from a flood or you just got a big business deal or you had a child or all kinds, all manner of things, you would bring an offering. And then, so the idea, according to Hasidus, is explained in in the Kuti Torah from the Alter Rebbe and then all other um, and many other books is that we, we are a composite of two souls. We have a divine soul and animal soul. And it's very tempting if we're trying to be more spiritual to kind of run away from our animal side and, and just isolate it. And there were people, you know, and there were ages during, uh, during times when people would just try to separate from the world, ascetics. And that's not the path that, that Hasidus, or generally speaking, the Torah recommends for us. The animal is not evil. The animal is something that we have to just train. We have to, and, and if, if the animal was evil and it was useless and it was garbage, we wouldn't be born with it. And in fact, there's something great about the animal that we all have inside of us that even beats our godly soul. It can do more. It has more power. It says that you can pull a plow with an ox, not a person. And, and so to do great things in the world, it comes from high energy of the world of tohu. That means this, uh, a, a spiritual level of kind of chaos that needs to be channeled. And a physical practice of that was bringing an offering. You would bring an animal. Everybody has, you know, some people are more like sheep. Some people are more like bulls. Uh, we all know our animal. And if we don't, you could ask your wife what kind of animal you are uh, or, your, or your good friends, if they're good, if they're good friends. And you bring your, uh, this animal and you offer something and, and the animal is now turns from matter to energy. And it, uh, you don't get rid of it. You, you make it a fire that's an uplifting fire. So, they, so, I mean, on a psychological level, practical level, we're talking about engaging the animal side of ourselves in things that, have, that are purposeful, intentional, and help the world and make God present, more present in the world. Whether it's, you know, everybody, a sense of wildness or mischief or, or maybe some people's animals are, are curious and intellectual. Some people's animals are, are, are followers. Um, there's all kinds of things that you could use everything for good. And that's the idea of bringing a carbon. Obviously, he wanted this world for a reason. We're here for a reason. And what we had back then through the, the animal sacrifices and what we have now is desire to take everything about us all our physicality and the, and the different personality and, and bring it all into the service of Hashem. That's right. Exactly. And it's said that because we don't have a temple, we have a corresponding service that in the morning and the evening, we also, we pray to Hashem. We have, we daven. And that is a spiritual version of bringing the animal. And that means to say, we spend time thinking about the things we're grateful for, making sure that the human side of us, the human animal side of us is just as grateful about all the things in our life. And we stretch the capabilities of our animal to be more spiritual and less coarse. We think about the times during the day when we might uh, be uh, encountering something that might bring on a negative response. And instead we try to muscle memory, train it out of us so that when we encounter that during the day, we, uh, you know, our animal is better trained. And the time of this service is the time of, of prayer. Okay. And this is really what I was thinking that where the, the Rabbi Nachman teaching tied in, because it's the, the idolatry that's keeping us in exile, this idolatry of the self that we, we all struggle with to some degree, a sense of self-importance, a sense of haughtiness. You can achieve something great in Torah. And what's the Yetzirah's next move? Aren't you amazing? Well done. Yeah. You're right. And you're like at the one yard line after bringing the ball downfield. 
And the Yetzirah tries to trip us up by taking the blessing that Hashem gave us and the ability to do something to serve Him and then use it for our own self-interest. And I think that's the whole idea is that we're, we want to bring that morning sacrifice in the afternoon one to all our davening and say, you know, and remove that sense of self-importance and realize that everything's coming from Hashem and everything that we accomplish is p- because of Hashem and, and, and turn around and, and sort of basically sacrifice, sacrifice that sense of self-importance. Yeah, very well put. And yeah, I, I heard a story that kind of connects. There was somebody who knew that he was, he would go around to different communities and he would review Hasidus from his Rebbe. And he loved doing it. In fact, it made him feel really good. And everybody loved to hear it. And he was, he was, uh, he was the, you know, the town preacher who go all around and people loved it. And he felt that he was getting too proud. And he went to his Rebbe and he said, I, uh, this is not working for me. And the Rebbe said to him, listen, this is your problem. You need to work on it. He says, I don't care if you become an onion. I'm so many layers of yourself. Right. You need to review Hasid. People need to hear it from you. So what, so how do we interpret that? Well, the answer is ultimately we have to do what we have to do, what we're needed for. And if we spend a lot of time, if we don't spend much time thinking about ourselves and we just think about what we're, uh, what we're needed for in the next thing, it will help a little bit to not be so self-absorbed. And for him, he was, uh, his sense of actually giving up himself was to put himself into that dangerous situation where you might get proud. And the Rebbe told him, do it anyway, because I need you to. Okay, so I think that that falls this line. Like the the first thing we do in our service of Hashem, we gotta we gotta negate the ego. This is the self importance, the etzer raw, before mm-hmm. we can enter into the the mishkan. You might even say that what was the very first thing was the washing of the hands, right? Because you have to wash out some of that. You're coming in and, and wash out some of the influence of the day. The Rebbe, the Babacha Rebbe, the most recent one, has a book called Hayom Yom, which is really great. I highly recommend you you and your listeners. It has maybe a paragraph every day of something that's an inspiration for the day. So I glanced at it today, and it actually relates to this. He quotes the Alter Rebbe, which is the first Chabad Rebbe, Rishner Zalman of Ladi. He says, the Alter Rebbe says, the offerings of the sanctuary included gold, silver, and copper, but nothing sparkled except for, the, except for or as much as the mirrors presented by the women. From these mirrors were fashioned the kior, the wash basin, and the base. They were the last item of the Mishkan, articles to be made, but they were used at the beginning of every service because the beginning is connected to the end. So um, in other places in Hasidus, it explains that the mirrors from the women, this was their sacrifice. They were giving up something that they used to make themselves beautiful. And Moshe was hesitant to take them. He said, this is is kind of awkward. Um, The history of those mirrors were like, the men in, in Egypt were giving up on life and on and all manner of fun things in life. Right, right, and they were tired. And they were tired and the women used the mirrors to, to to make sure the men were still interested and children entire generation of children was born and then became the children to leave egypt as a consequence of the women still having mirrors right. and those mirrors were donated and moshe was uncomfortable with it and hashem said no they're very precious um and and more more to the point where everything in this world can be used to make something to, to make a home for god and the last thing the most Let's say you might think that's the, the, the lowest level or the most outer or coarse things. And, and our life can be used in the very beginning. And that was used first to wash off the sense of the outside world before beginning service, before the Kohanim began the service. So really, if we really sort of trace back what we covered so far, it's 
It's creating that outside courtyard. As a Jewish people, we need to be involved with the world, but we need to also be a little insular as far as separating ourselves from the outside negative influences, cleansing ourselves and, and sacrificing and, 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 and removing that ego. And then we, I think that that will now allow us to go and enter into the Mishkan. Let's go in. The walls of the Mishkan were made out of atzei shitim, acacia wood, coated in gold. And where did this wood come from in the desert? And, and, and when it's describing the building of it, it says, you should make it the ha-crushim, the boards shall be made from. Yes, and, and the commentaries say the boards, as if we already know where they're from. And, and, and instead of just saying boards, it says that the history of those boards is that when Jacob, when Yaakov brought the whole family into Egypt, he brought some young acacia trees. And he planted them in Egypt. And those are the boards that they, those are the trees they brought out with them. So when you see the, you know, Ten Commandments, when they're all leaving Egypt, well, they're bringing also, they should be bringing all these logs, a mini forest. There's a lot of them. So they, you can imagine bringing a forest. But, wow. but just imagine though, the, the, the tens of years in terrible slavery, and they're being told they're worthless, nothing. And they're always going to be a slave. And you're nothing and, and you don't matter. But then they have this little forest, the whispering trees of Yaakov saying, one day you're going to leave this place and you do matter and you're going to build a home for God. And our sages tell us that it's kind of like the Jewish people in exile. We're out there and we have a forest. Those forests are the occasional tzaddik, a holy person. It's like evidence that we're more than this. And that's the, the message of those trees. And so those trees were made out of acacia wood and they, they brought them and and that was the structure of the, of the Mishkan we have. The Rebbe comments in, in a mimer, in the, same, in the same one I mentioned, the same discourse, Basa Degani, that the same word in Hebrew for acacia, shitim, is a unique word. We see it all over, but usually it represents stupidity, folly, irrational behavior. Shtus, shin, okay. shinta. And it, it literally means turning off the way, uh, turning aside from the, from the way. And it's fine, he says, as it's kind of surprising, you would think that the structure of our temple would be made out of irrational behavior. And he says, uh, you know, there's many things. This is uh, his father-in-law, the, uh, the previous Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, was the one to first bring this idea out. He says, there's many things in our life that we are, we are irrational about. You know, we will not break a time of dinner. Sorry, anything can be going on, but, you know, at least in those days, today, I don't know if this, we're so formal. But... You know, look at uh, look at how people follow sports teams or they just jump into some project and we all take it for granted that everybody's going to have kind of their, their, uh, they're all in on something. Right, right. And There's that's something fine. irrational we're, we're all doing. We can think we're intelligent, rational human beings, but we can all find stuff in our life that just doesn't make any sense. Right, exactly. So, so one approach is to say, stop being so weird. Let's just be normal <laughs> and let's just be calculated, rational. Let's think about the long term here. Right. That spiritual is more important than physical, and we should give no credence to that. You know, but the problem is, it's a couple problems. First of all, it's hard to just be normal. The, the Rambam describes, he says, if, if you have a metal rod that is bent one way, and you want to make it straight, because yeah, everybody's supposed to be straight and narrow, and it says you try bending it back straight, it's, never, it's always going to be crooked. But if you have to bend it all the way back the other way, then it'll get straight. Right. So that's one point. But the more important point is that going back to the idea that everything in the world is useful. So we even have to make a use out of irrational behavior. So how is that? I mean, look, look at what really sticks in this world to go far and beyond, to go to get excited and crazy about something. 
That's what your kids will remember. That's what will accomplish things. You know, it's the crazy ones like the old Apple ad. And, um, and so to take something that is, you know, when we're giving charity, okay, what if it's a little too much? You know, if you're spending time learning Torah, what if it's a little too much? If you're, um, if you're going to make a, a, a decision about um, cutting, cutting something negative out of your life, what if you go a little overboard? And, and just to be, a, to be willing to be irrational, that could be the structure of your Mishkan. Right. I, you brought up this idea uh, one Shabbos when you were teaching, and I, I love this idea because it's, it's, we're all can think of things already that we're already doing that's irrational. But it's irrational for mundane type stuff. So if we're going to do that anyway, let's use a little bit of that same irrationality but in the service of Hashem and our Yiddishkeit. And I think that's a, it's a beautiful idea. Yeah. Don't leave anything on the table. We're supposed to, where he said, like, it's about taking everything. I think really as you sort of go through this, I think all this applies to the idea that we're taking everything that we are, everything that we have, and we're using it in the, the service of Hashem. Totally. Well put. So after the the beams, which by the way, if you will look at the word beam itself, it's a kuf, a resh, and a shin. Keresh. Crush him. If you're not careful, it will crush him. Um, anyway, sorry. Bad joke. Uh, and the uh, those three letters in general, if you scramble them, it also means sheker, lies. The, the, it, it's along the same concept. The things that we lie to ourselves about and you now turning it around turning the lies of the world and transforming the negative into positive. In Hebrew, the word for truth is emes, and it spans the entire olive base from the beginning, olive, and then you have mem in the middle, oh, and wow, then yeah. tough at the end, that's emes. And all three of those letters are very stable letters. If you look, they stand on their own. They're left-right stability because truth is always true. Truth is true in all circumstances, and it's true on the left side and on the right side when you're trying to be kind or severe, that's truth. So the Aleph stands, the Mem stands, and the Tuf stands. On the other hand, all those other three level letters, Sheker, all three of them are narrow letters with a pointy bottom. Lies do not stand in the long term. So the, the, each of those three letters are pointy bottoms, and they're all three in a row because lies are transient. They're, they, 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 they survive for just about a time, and then they pass. Again, uh, the idea of transformation of negative is to turn the sheker, the lie, into keresh, into a board for the, for the mishkan. The boards were coated with gold and then covered with different layers of curtains. In fact, some people, uh, and, and sometimes the curtains themselves are called the mishkan, the curtains. There are parts of us that are not inside. They're more hovering on the outside, and that's called, in the, in the language of Kabbalah, that'd be called makif, hovering or surrounding, like we have faith, uh, but it doesn't necessarily affect our day-to-day behavior. Some people's faith could, uh, could remain on the outside. There's a, there's a line from the Gemara that says, a thief um, prays to God that he's about to, the, when he's about to go on his, uh, on his escapade, he's, he's hoping it will be successful. Say, right. please make this heist work. <laughs> right, exactly. And so that's faith, but it's not internalized faith. So that's like the outer layers of the Mishkan, are these important super conscious parts of ourselves but we have to walk inside the mishkan and 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 bring it in and and the beauty of the outside layers are are, very, are gorgeous materials because we all have that um we all have that outer hovering potential parts of ourselves that we we just have to access inside the mishkan why don't we start with the menorah the menorah had seven branches 
as differentiated from the Chanukiah, which we use today, that has eight branches because of the eight days of Chanukah. But the menorah in the, in the Mishkan and in the Beis HaMikdash had seven branches. And there's, of course, many interpretations of that. I'm sure you've read. Generally speaking, throughout Kabbalah, we have the number seven over and over representing the different midos, different types of personalities or the different characteristics that we have in our soul, powers of the soul to have emotional, uh, the emotional powers of the soul that correlate with these seven emotional powers, the, the way that Hashem expresses himself in the world. There too, you have uh, the seven days of six days of creation, and then Shabbos is is along the same theme. And um, so, the seven candles of the Mishkan, the seven candles of the Menorah, I mean, were lit by Aaron. And this is the Aaronism, a, a man of Chasset, of kindness, of love. This is lighting up the love in every single Jew. We have this is what a tzaddik will do for us, and also we can do for somebody else, for ourselves, and depending on different kinds of different categories of Jews. An interesting thing to note, the menorah, the Rebbe comments a couple things. He prefers the Rambam's drawing of the menorah, and he proves, according to his opinion, and he thinks it's important to publicize, that the menorah did not have curved arms, as shown in many books, including even in the Temple Institute, which is uh, in Yerushalayim, which is a very cool place to visit. But they do it, they, they side with the curved opinion. The Rebbe comments that really the source, the main source of this is the Arch of Titus. And it's, it's, he, he's not necessarily the best source for what we should consider our tradition. And he might have just drawn it and, 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 and been various candelabras being brought out. That's kind of near, neither here or there, but I just wanted to bring it up. One thing that is brought, though, is that there's these cups that are, that are there on each arm. And because the menorah is there to represent the soul that's lighting up. The cups are upside down, in particular according to the Rambam's drawing. There's these cones that are basically dumping light out. Um, and that also correlates with the way that the entire Beit HaMikdash um, had windows in, the, in Yerushalayim, and those windows in the olden days you had very thick walls. And so to bring light in, you would often have one side of the window be thinner than the other, so that the light would have a chance to spread and, um, and typically, always 99.9% .9 of the time, the thin side would be outside and the thick side inside so that you could have the light bring so in. So the light would expand when it comes inside. Exactly. Okay. On the other hand, in the Beis HaMikdash, uh, the, uh, the Haftarah of this week, we just read it, it just says it was the opposite. And it was thicker on the outside because we were spreading light to the whole world. So the same way that the menorah is supposed to spread light outwards and, and to produce light, not to, not to just enjoy the light for yourself, but to make light for the world. And that's what the Mishkan and, or, and, and particularly the Beis HaMikdash uh, had the same idea. So more on the, uh, what the purpose of the menorah. Okay, great. Yeah, I was reading some uh, interesting commentary too that the, you had three candles on the right, three candles on the left pointing to the, the larger one in the middle. And... The three on each side were there to signify that whether we are in an intellectual pursuit of learning Torah or we're, we're, there, we're engaging ourselves for our livelihood, that both those things should be equally pointed towards the service of Hashem. Yes. Like to not think like, oh, it's work time now. This is not to do with Hashem. And that will come again when I go meet with my Harusa night and study or on Shabbos. It's like, don't think like that. Everything is part of a service to Hashem. I thought that was a beautiful That's idea. That's such a good point. We have to be aligned 
we have to be complete people and not have segments that you know cut off part parts of ourselves. This is one part of me that's like this, and then oh, I, I saw a whole another side to him. Everything you know, ideal person is not uh, is not ten different people. It's one person, and that's a very good point. Another thought is that the oil that made this light yeah. in the menorah was made of olive oil, and it says kasis lamaar, squeezed, pressured, beaten for for light. And this is actually from the last discourse of the Rebbe. He talks a lot about this, how life and, and you know, li- living under difficult circumstances really puts us under pressure. And But we see that many times in life, in the Jewish history, the worst pressure has produced, the toughest pressure has produced great light from us. And we have this inside of us, this amazing potential, and it has to be sometimes squeezed out of us. However, he notes that sometimes it says, in the same verse, it says to make light from the evening to morning. And then sometimes it says, tamid, always. And he says, it depends what creates the pressure. When the pressure is external from us, you know, somebody forces us to do something and it brings out something from us, it's possible for that pressure to just survive, for, for that light that comes out of us to only be there under those circumstances. He says, you see people who had tremendous ability to self uh, for self-sacrifice but then when they got to good times when when they came out of those circumstances it wasn't necessarily apparent that that's the same person who did that because if ultimately it's it's not embedded within our personality and we're able to override our personality people you can do that for long sustained periods of time if, and that's an amazing thing and 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 we should be proud of what uh, you know uh, of what we've done as a community and it's amazing when when uh, when, a, when when a person gives up their their life or or responds to pressure in that way. He says, ideally, though, we're able to create the pressure within ourselves so that it doesn't have to be done to us. First of all, it's uncomfortable, and we don't want that. But more importantly, then it's permanent. Then it's not only in the evening, from evening to morning. It's always. So how do you do that? He says, look around the world, and God willing, everything is good in your life. Everything is good, both materially and spiritually. You're, you're doing your purpose, you're doing well. However, if you look around and you see how much other people are in need, if there's other people in suffering, and in fact, in a certain sense, Shekhinah, God's presence is in Gullus, is in exile. There's evil in the world and all of that should create a certain sense in us of being under pressure. And it, we should be able to replicate that Kasi's that the way you squeeze the olive just from that alone if we're able to do that then we have light that lasts beautiful this life is about hashem creating circumstances to put to squeeze us to get the best out of us and we just have to remember that when it feels like he's pushing and squeezing let me a little too hard yeah yeah we do but the another thing I've, I've read about that too with the oil is it also is a metaphor for our thoughts and ideas and that they would the oil that would go in the menorah would be the, the first pressing of that oil, which is the purest oil. And the menorah is, is basically like our eyes and our ears and how we take in information and our, and our thoughts. And, and by always making sure, too, that we have the, the purest thoughts in our mind and only expose ourselves to you know, truly holy type ideas. And then we can make, then we can make light. Yeah. If you have like as you're saying, if the if the oil is sed- sediment filled and it's like has all this coarse stuff in it, it'll be uh, it won't be kosher for a menorah, exactly. and then you'll make this like spluttery light that's just not. I think Rabbi Adin Steinstall says 
we all want to be a light to the nations, but some people think you just have to take a picture of a fire and show it to everybody. He says, no, you have to be on fire. <laughs> if you want to be a light to the nations, you need, you need to be on fire. Right. Well, I don't mean that literally. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea of light, we use light. The idea there is use that as a metaphor. Light is Hashem's presence, really. Yeah. Throughout Kabbalah, that's the favorite me- metaphor of Kabbalah. Or in Kalim. Light and vessels, or filters, or adapters, or some, you know, something like that. And the light, we have to create, first of all, we, we basically have to channel light. We don't have to create it. We just have to be a good, clear passageway for Hashem's light into the world. So when you see, like, the reason Aaron had this position of the Kohen Gadol, is he channeled light. Because when you see a man that would normally become jealous when his little bro gets to become the leader of the Jewish people when he was more experienced, but he just felt absolute joy and happiness for his, his brother. That's opting, acting the opposite of how humans normally act. And I think, you know, through the tour and everything we're doing, it's to, it's to basically do a 180 reverse of everything that we men, people naturally do. And we're, and we're doing that. And I think that's the whole idea of that's what brings the, the light of Hashem to the world. Mm-hmm. When we, we, we train ourselves, the Jewish people, to do the opposite of human nature. Yeah. And in, uh, to bring it back to the idea of thought, Tanya explains that you can, change your, you can change your feelings. That the mind controlling the heart is a basic premise. And it doesn't only mean that when you want to do something, you can choose not to. Of course, it means that. But it also means that you can control your emotions by deciding what thoughts come in first. Thought is not as the world thinks something that happens to you thought is a behavior it's a choice and it's a, and you can't stop thinking but you can change what you're thinking about so if you put in you know wheat kernels into the mill you're going to get wheat flour if you put in barley old old rotten barley you're going to get bad barley flour and the things we expose ourselves to and the things we actively meditate or think about are are, are they're going to deliver feelings so if we, for example, have something negative about somebody in our mind, we can choose to think about the best things or things that they've actually done positively for us. And that will change our opinions of them. And that's the idea of like, you know, what Yosef or his brothers, you may have intended to, to do bad to me, but, but Hashem chose to make it good. And he had nothing in his heart except for love to his brothers. Right. And like you said about Aaron and Moshe. The other item we forgot to mention that's in the Kodesh, that's in the, um, that's in the hall there, is the Shulchan table, which, as I understand it, represents Parnassah, sustenance. You have all the bread there. And so it's about making that a holy experience. And as you said, not having a part of your life that's like, oh, I'm now in business and I'm going to be this shark. Right. And, but really making that just as much a service. Hopefully, we should all make a lot of money and do good things with it. But in the course of making that money, we should also be, it's, there's a line uh, that says, Behold, know God in all your ways. In all your ways means in everything you do. You know, uh, an interesting idea about bread representing Parnassa, livelihood, is that bread is this one staple of our sustenance that requires that Hashem provide all the ingredients, but it takes our effort along with those ingredients to create bread. And... You know, that's why I've, I've read this commentary. It's not my own. 
that, that, that is why that, that food requires that, that special baraka and why it was inside the Mishkan and why it helped increase the abundance of everyone's livelihood. If you think about the way these parshas have, the, the sequence of them over the last three or four weeks is we have the given of the Torah, the 10th commandment, to not covet your neighbor's property, to not look at something and say, oh, I wish I had that instead of him. Why does he have that? I don't have that. Why did he get the promotion? Or why did he, you know, and... Well, it's go, endless. You're always going to be right. jealous. You exactly. can always find somebody. But we go, we go from, it's so interesting, we go from this commandment of not to feel a certain way, uh-huh. and then we go to the Mishpatim, and we start learning all this law on civil matters. Okay, so now you know that not to be envious of what belongs to your brother. Now let's figure out the laws on how to determine when property belongs to one person versus another. Mm-hmm. So all these these matters with physicality, there's there's just literally there's no distinction at all with what's spiritual and what's physical. Well, it means both. It means all. It's the, all. The Torah, the Torah, like we said at the beginning of the conversation, the, is outside of this world, so it comes into this world in many layers. Golden Mizbeach, the golden altar, is burning the Ketoros. And Hasidus comments that the word for offerings on the outside is karbanot, and which could be from the word karov, close. You, you're bringing close, you're offering. Whereas the word for the ketoras, the incense, the smoke, is from the word katar, which means a bond. It means tied. It, it's actually, it's Aramaic, and it means something even closer. So this is the inner heart. This is basically deep con- emotional connection to Hashem. That, that was the service of the Kohen Gadol, the, the high priest. Talk about the, the spices. The Ketoras, as I understand it, represents transformation of evil. The number of Ketoras was 11, which generally speaking is a number that is associated with a negative energy mm-hmm. because 10 is the stamp of everything Kedusha, uh, everything holy in the world. And the 11th means that in addition to channeling God's, the, the 10 kind of, a spectrum into, of Hashem's energy into the world, I feel myself. It's about the idolatry. It's about it's the self-worship. And, and so anything in the 11 would be representing that. And in fact, one of the ingredients had a bad smell to it. But in, in concert, it was all very a very holy, very good smell. And it represents transformation of negative, a particular tshuva, the ability to, to repent from, from things, from real sin with the assistance of the Kohen, the priest. All right, so now we go into the Holy Holies. Where are these component pieces, the Ark? We have the, what else is in there? We have the, the in, within the Ark, we have the tablets. Mm-hmm. And was there anything else? There's a Torah. There's a Torah as scroll well. there too, okay. And but we don't have a Torah scroll when they're first doing it. There's no Torah scroll, but I guess that was later when the temple was in the, we had a, okay. That's right, when in, in the temple. And then you also had there a jar of mun that was kept there in the in the temple not in the original mishkan of course because they had the mun there every day but this this aron was basically when hashem would talk to moshe it was from between the kruvim it was this was the portal to infinity this was the place where physical met spiritual in our world was the was the aron kodesh the holy ark of a covenant and the kruvim there those those symbolic Angels represented the relationship between the Jewish people and God. Those are the two faces of children. That means like the one child and the other is like child in terms of like 
diminish God's presence or like God's presence for here in our physical world, a junior version of it. And in fact, the word kruvim in Hebrew, the commentary say it means kiravia, like a child. And so this connection between divine and human, between Hashem and people, is the place where Hashem speaks to us from. Inside, what, what created the holiness of this place was the fact that the luchos, the tablets, were there. Because God put his plan for what he wants in the world in the Torah. And the luchos, the tablets, were summary of the Torah. And they are a physical manifestation of maybe of, of, of God, what God wants from this world. And that was what created the potential for such holiness in the Aaron, which is basically the, the brain or the source of the whole Mishkan. And we had the, the first pair that were broken tablets and then the, the second set. So, you know, it's not only, you know, this, this inner core connection point between the Jewish people and our creator was around this ark that housed, from one, the Torah, but through those tablets, that was our kasuba. That was our eternal marriage. And having the, the broken tablets in there, not ignoring those, we were able to do teshuva and restore it. I think part of that connection, building that mishkan within ourselves, is, is always knowing that. That is an eternal marriage that he made with us. But even when we fall, then there's what's called a Yerida Latora Chalia. It's a descent for the purpose of an ascent. And what we're going to get to after is going to be even stronger connection than had we not fallen, if we do the work of Chuva. The, the Mishkan in the desert was a first version of this. And it lasted for hundreds of years, at least it was partially, it was transformed into a stone version. Uh, but they, they kept all the other components and they kept the, the curtains on the roof. To give it more permanence, it was a stone in the city of Shiloh and Nov. The beams were buried under the, temp, under the tunnels in, in Yerushalayim because nothing Moshe was involved in, created, uh, in creating could be destroyed. So those things are buried in Yerushalayim somewhere. And it was the precursor for the Beis HaMikdash, for the stone temple of the Beis HaMikdash that lasted 410 years and then was destroyed by the Babylonians, and then we had 420 years, ending with the Romans destroying it in the year 70. But if you look throughout history, so we've had big bumps, lots of bumps. But one more thought on this arc of history is that we're making progress. And if you say that the goal is to bring God's presence into the world, we started that with receiving the Torah and building the Mishkan in one place. And the Mishkan, was made out of various components. The, the, the books of Kabbalah talk about our physical world having four strata of existence. There's the lowest level, which is inanimate, and that'd be like stones and anything that's inorganic. Then you've got the growing things, uh, like vege uh, you know, vegetation, grass, trees, plants, fruits. Then you have animals, and finally humans. That's the fourth layer. And that the Mishkan, when you, when you did service in the Mishkan, you were bringing all four of those things because the offerings had things from plants, it had the person himself involved in it, it had and things from animals, and then you even brought salt. That was to make sure that we had something from the in, inorganic. However, the structure of the Mishkan did not have anything inorganic. It was all growing things. So the beams were there. Of course, you had the gold, so there was the metal. 
but the, uh, but, the, but the actual base structure was made out of growing things. It's because the process for reaching godliness, reaching down into the world was hadn't yet got for, fully down. But then you come to the temple where it was all stone and it was actually progress. It was progress. We now have God can even be found in stone. And that was actually a um, good thing. So we really have us throughout the course of history making things in this world a home for God that you wouldn't have expected. And the stones, that whole thing is a metaphor for that. And we're going to be doing it more and more till we actually have Hashem present in the most surprising things until, you know, ultimately the coming of Mashiach when we'll feel God's presence in everything. There's another Hayom Yom I mentioned, uh, the Rebbe's book. I think it's from yesterday. And it says that in the times of Mashiach, we will be able to sense the stones calling out from us if we're walking around and not doing anything purposeful. And we're not saying maybe reviewing Torah in our mind or, or verbally. The stones will be as if calling out to us saying, why are you walking on me? <laughs> and so we'll be able to sense that. In Navi, it says, <laughs> That the world will be so filled with knowledge of God like, the, like water covers the sea. And we'll, we'll sense it in, in the most mundane and physical objects. And that's, that's what we're building towards. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I appreciate you coming on. I think it's a remarkable topic. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us on the deeper meaning behind all these components of the Mishkan and how we can learn from that and grow and build a Mishkan within ourselves. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And we see the rebuilding of the temple speedily in our days. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page.